Welcome back to Blurred on the Street, a podcast featuring three Black and Indigenous women who cover everything from books, movies, TV shows, and games, just to name a few. I'm Jenna. And I'm Jillian. And I'm Lily. And we'll be your hosts for this episode. For our first season three episode, we're going to be joined by G.S. Pendergrass, author of the YA novel Zero Repeat Forever. G.S. Gabrielle Pendergrass is the uh, best-selling author of numerous books for children and teens. She studied at the University of New South Wales in Australia at San Francisco State University and the University of British Columbia. After years of working in the music industry, in social welfare, and the film industry, Gabrielle began writing books when she became a mother so that she could work from home. Her books have received nominations for the White Pine Award, the Canadian Library Association Award, the Vancouver Book Prize, and several other honors. She won the BC Book Prize for her YA sci-fi Zero Repeat Forever and the Westchester Award for her YA novel and verse Audacious. Born in the UK and both an Australian and New Zealand citizen, Gabrielle now lives in East Vancouver in a permanent state of under construction. Well, from that intro, we can only glean so much. So take us through your writing journey. My writing journey. <laughs> wow. Um, people often ask me if I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and I did. Um, when I was a little girl, even before I knew how to write, I used to get my mother to staple bits of paper together into like little books. And I would just scribble in them because I didn't know how to write. So I must have been like, you know, three or four. Um, I started writing my first book. Well, I started writing poetry when I was about eight. I remember writing poetry in school and my teachers being like, wow, this is actually a pretty good poem. Um, and then I wrote some more poetry. Um, this would be like grade three, four, five around that. And then I, I think probably in grade five, I started writing my first book. Um, it was after I saw the first Star Wars movie, which was 1977. So I was 10. So it was around that time. And it was basically Mark Hamill fan fiction. <laughs> Self-insert Mark Hamill fan fiction. Um, <laughs> But the, but the plot of it was um, a lot like Harry Potter. That's the funny thing. It was about this orphan who discovers that she's a witch and oh. she has to go on this kind of adventure with this strange guy um, to this castle and yeah. Okay. Right. So that, <laughs> so, so, so which that stood in for, which stood in for Jedi? Is, is that how it was? I, something like that. I think I must have seen a movie or a TV show at that time that was very much like the vibe that J.K. Rowling was trying to get back into when she wrote mm -hmm. Harry Potter. Um, you know, of the sort of the boarding schools and the orphanages and the mm -hmm. kind of old English thing. So I must have seen or read something along those lines at that age. And, and that's what I was trying to emulate from, <laughs> you know, the perspective <laughs> of a little Canadian kid in French immersion school. Um, so that was the beginning of my writing journey. And I wrote um, a little bit in high school and I really wanted to write. I just wanted to write. And so I wrote, I wanted to enter a, um, a short story competition in grade 
10, I guess it was. And I wrote this short story and I showed it to my English teacher who was also my gym teacher. And she was like, well, it's not very good. So I didn't enter the contest, okay. but I was determined. So the next year I switched to another school where they had a creative writing class. Mm-hmm. And I actually did that against my parents' wishes. I forged their signature and everything so I could switch to this school just to do creative writing. And in that class, I wrote another short story, and that short story won first prize in my province, and it was one of the nice. um, ten winners in all of Canada. Oh, um, wow, that's awesome! Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so and that so I was sixteen then, and but I didn't really write much fiction um, after that because I started getting into songwriting, and I was in mm-hmm. a band and everything, and then when I went to university in my twenties, I did some more writing and I started writing a novel, which I never finished. And, um, I, I majored in English, but I didn't, I didn't know you could major in creative writing. So (laughs) no one told me. So I majored in English and psychology and I thought I should get a grown up job. So I did, when I graduated, I started working in social welfare, which I hated. Mm -hmm. Um, then while I was working in social welfare, I met a guy who um, was a filmmaker and he suggested to me that I write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. So I did. And I sold that screenplay to a production company and it was made into a movie called Hildegard starring Richard E. Grant. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> Over here. Yeah. yeah, I love yeah. Oscar nominated right. Richard E. Grant. I yeah. should say now. Wow. Um, and um so then I worked in, in um, you know, I wrote some more screenplays and I worked for a couple of TV shows. This was in Australia, so you wouldn't have heard of any of them. Um, and uh, then my husband and I moved to San Francisco because he got a job in tech in San Francisco. And um, I didn't have a work permit. Um, so I just did some writing and then I had a baby. And then, you know, being a mom, I sort of went off the idea of working in the film industry because you know you have to be on set for hours and everything like not screenwriters don't normally but it's just kind of a big hassle and then we moved to Canada not long after my daughter was born because um it was just after the um I guess the war on terror is that what they called it just after that started Bush was president and we were just like this is not our scene. <laughs> we understand. Yeah, yeah. completely. <laughs> totally get so that. We moved, so we moved to Canada. Um, and then the film industry in Canada was not super strong at that time. And I was I was at home with my kids. So um, I decided to start writing fiction again. I went to UBC to do a Master of Fine Arts, University of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote a novel for my thesis that will also never be published. Um, <laughs> and then I, um, and then the next novel I wrote was my first YA novel, Audacious. And um, I've been publishing basically at least a book a year ever since. Wow. Yeah, that's, so. That's amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> so uh, our next question was gonna be, when did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? But I feel like you okay. kind of answered that already. If you could so, do a pen or a pen right. for a crayon or something. 
So uh, what I'll ask instead is like when, where between, you know, the script writing and um, doing films and all that, did you realize that you wanted to publish like a novel? Um, well, I guess I started writing my novel it was before my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. Hildegard, my movie is a children's movie, right? And mm -hmm. I think that's where I really found my feet because the first novel that I started writing in college was um, sort of more inspired by Margaret Atwood. She was kind of my idol. Um, and I just found, you know, it wasn't really my vibe, I guess. It just wasn't kind of flowing and it didn't feel natural. It felt like I was faking. And it wasn't until I started writing for children that I sort of found my voice, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And so this was at also, you know, this was the early 2000s. So this was a time where children's publishing was really blowing up, mainly because mm -hmm. of Harry Potter and then later because of Twilight. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, you know, then I was like, oh, okay, these are my people. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I love reading the books. I loved, um, you know, all the books that were coming out of that time, Percy Jackson, and, mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, you know, just, there, there were some like more literary ones, like I, Coriander, and, and um, uh, Magic, and you know, this, these fantasy books, and then when young adults started taking off the Hunger Games and mm -hmm. um, yeah. Unwind and stuff, I really loved it all. So mm -hmm. there, uh, you know, then I was like, okay, this is this is where I am. I, originally, I started writing picture books mm -hmm. because I had a baby, right? right. So I was right. writing these picture books sort of for her, mm -hmm. and um, it was kind of hard to get them. Uh, you know, it's hard to get your career started with picture books unless you're also an artist. Right. So um, I showed them to a lot of publishers. I had some publishers interested. I had one publisher very interested in one of my stories, but they wanted to change something about it so critical that I was like, I can't do this. It would be a different story and not. And it's sort of one of one of my more political books. Okay. Okay. So and they wanted to change the politics to really soften it. And I was like, no, it's not going to not going to work. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I struggled a little bit with, with picture books and then I was kind of like, okay, it's, you know, if you really want to be a writer, you have to like get yourself together and write a novel. So okay, that's what I started doing. I started <laughs> writing novels. My thesis novel, um, I got an agent based on that novel, but it never sold. And I'm glad now, cause I look at it now and I realize it's, it's got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I okay. forgot what the question was, but. <laughs> um, so what would you say is your interesting kind of writing quirk? I know every author has one. Um, gosh, my interesting writing quirk. Um, well, I think the quirks that I have are the same quirks that a lot of other writers have. So it's. Yeah you know, probably quirky in a way, but not that unusual for writers. I, mm -hmm. I tend to reuse scenes I've noticed. Oh, okay. okay. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I was reading something that I wrote the other day. 
uh, one of my children's books and I realized that there's a scene in it that's very similar to a scene in Zero Repeat Forever. I'm trying to think now oh. what it was. Yeah. Um, just a little scene, like nothing sort of, you know, kind of little throwaway scene. I don't remember what it was, but I, so I mm -hmm. do that. I think for me, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people think um, they talk about being plotters or pantsers. I don't know if you mm -hmm. guys know what that yeah. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a plotter yeah. plots out their book and a pantser just writes it. Mm -hmm. just pick up and write by the seat mm -hmm. of their pants and I do um you know I'm so chaotic that I can't even really choose one so I do both <laughs> yeah sometimes I pants complete books I think probably my next novel that will be published I'm negotiating with a publisher about it right now um is a middle grade novel and I pants that I completely pants it I had a vague idea Basically, all I had was like 250 word synopsis, and I pants wow. the whole thing. Um, but then uh, my another novel, which I have um, with my agent, is who's uh, showing it to publishers right now. I plotted that whole thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, I'll do like a bit of both, even mm -hmm. within a novel. So I'll pants half the novel, then I'll be like, I have no idea where this is going, yeah. and then I have to write out a plot. So. So I'm quite messy that way. Like I'm so messy that I can't even decide whether to be a plotter or a pantser, basically. So you, for your book ideas, do you choose the plot first? Like does the story come to you first or do the characters come to you first? Do you say, oh, hey, I want to write about? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, probably... I think sometimes the characters come first, but the plot follows very quickly. So this book that I have um, where I'm negotiating with a publisher right now is called The Anxious Exile of Sarah Salt. And I, I got the idea from one of those games, you know how the, those games where they're like, um, figure out what your fantasy title is, where, you know, you use your, your middle <laughs> yeah. name. Or yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You end up with like this accord of diamonds and demons or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this was figure out what your literary middle grade novel is. And I was like, I want to write a liter literary middle grade novel. <laughs> so I did it. And it was like, um, it's like the, and then your most common emotion. And then your favorite board game. And then your middle name. And then your favorite seasoning. Okay. So I had the anxious scrabble of Sarah Salt. <laughs> okay okay and Scrabble is my favorite board game yeah. um and I'm anxious all the time and you know just being honestly I put salt on everything right so I know <laughs> like, you know not a seasoning but I was just like I put salt on everything so that's my favorite I'm being honest um so I changed Scrabble to exile so I was just like I just need another word that sounds like Scrabble and so I was like is it scramble is it is it ramble is it and then I came up with exile and so then I had this title and more importantly I had this little girl called Sarah Salt and I could just see her in my head and she was anxious obviously so I have mm -hmm. an anxious girl called Sarah Salt <laughs> she has to be exiled how is she exiled so that's kind of where it came from right um, and it ends up being the story about this little girl who goes and lives with her um, adult sister in Toronto while her parents are dealing with some medical um, uh, issues uh, with her baby brother. So, um, so yeah, so then I had to just kind of invent the story from there. So I guess that one started with a character. 
Zero Repeat Forever started from a scene, which okay. I dreamed. Um, and it was totally different in the dream. It wasn't an alien. It was, it was just this question of like, um, the character in the dream, who I guess was me, was not sure whether they were being rescued or kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And so um, the whole the whole story. So that's the scene where um, Eighth is carrying August. Um, Eighth is carrying um, Raven up the stairs mm-hmm. in the apartment oh, building. Oh yeah, right, right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I dreamed that scene, and um, the whole the whole series just kind of like snowflaked out from there basically or snowballed I guess you'd say you know (laughs) so um yeah so that's my ideas come from yeah all different all different ways but I don't think I've ever been like you know like I think I want to write something about a dentist or a cheerleader or whatever I do kind of want to write something about a cheerleader so maybe I have done that (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean like my ideas come from everywhere. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Are you sticking kind of with middle grade for the moment? Or are you going to be switching between that and YA? And Well, um, you know, the other night I did this, um, uh, like a, a reading presentation and somebody asked me, you know, because I do middle grade, I do picture books, I do young adult, I've dabbled in adult. I do like lower, you know, like easy reads. I do everything. And she, and she was like, I thought that, you know, the advice was that you should find one sort of niche and stick to it. Right. I've done science fiction. I've done fantasy. I've done this, I've done that. And I said, that's only the advice if you're successful in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stick with what like, you're yeah. doing yeah, like good if, in. If Zero Repeat Forever had been a New York Times bestseller, and you know the, my publisher wanted to continue the series and everything. Then I would just be writing science fiction, young adult science fiction. I'd be happy to write young young adult science fiction for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm still kind of trying to like hit that jackpot. So I try, I try all kinds of things, and you know because just being a Canadian author is like a little bit. It's a little bit of a struggle. Like we're sort of. Um, I don't know why it is but um you know the publishers here are smaller and the advances are smaller and it we do sort of struggle to get into the american market even though the publisher for zero repeat forever was uh american i had a canadian publisher too and i got a lot more support from my canadian publisher than i did from my american publisher and i i I sort of feel like I don't know, like marginalized in a weird way. And I don't know why, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that, that, because it's not like, I don't think anybody should be marginalized in the publishing industry for reasons of identity, obviously. Right. So I don't, but I don't know why. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a weird thing. A lot of Canadian um, authors, I have a friend who's a black Canadian author and she's, she feels like the the um you know the black author community which is really strong and really supportive they mm-hmm. kind of neglect her and I'm like guys why are you neglecting this awesome author is it because she's Canadian because that's really weird <laughs> why would you do that mm-hmm. um so I don't know what it is there seems to be some sort of barrier between American authors and Canadian authors and I, I don't really know why so but as a result you know I have to a lot of Canadian authors do a lot of different things 
because mm -hmm. that's how you can have a kind of a continual career and, you know, almost make a living. Right. right. So, um, so I'm doing, I have a, a middle grade book, which I'm just about to sign a contract for with a publisher. I'm going to talk to them and we'll, we'll see, but I think it'll probably work out. Um, then I have a young adult book that my agent is shopping for me. I'm writing another young adult book. Um, I have a picture book coming out uh, in a couple of months, you know, mm -hmm. so. And I now are these books published, they're published in Canada and the US or like, how does that work? Yeah, I have, I, I worked, okay, so Zero Repeat Forever and my picture book, um, If Pluto Was a P, were both published by Simon & Schuster US. Okay. Um, but they also, I had a separate publishing deal with Simon & Schuster Canada and another deal with Simon & Schuster UK. Okay. Um, but with um, the rest of my books, they're published with, um, with an independent publishing company in Canada called Orca. And or Orca has world rights for their books, so they sell them okay. wherever, and they sell and they do quite well. Uh, they 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 publish a lot of books that are really suitable for school libraries and things like that. Mm -hmm. Sort of short novels and stuff that that uh, you know kids can uh, grab for their independent reading and things like that. Right. So um, so Orca has world rights and. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I want to publish the again because Orca is a smaller publisher and they're an independent publisher. The money is not that great, so I sort of want to kind of do both mm -hmm. and work with more than one publisher. And that's a sensible thing to do because usually a publisher will only release one book from you in a year. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. ultimately, in order for me to be successful, it would be better if I um, had two books a year. And I okay. can definitely do two books a year. Okay. So. I kind of, I kind of need to establish a relationship with another publisher. And unfortunately, my relationship with Simon and Schuster is not that great. Right. So probably have to be somebody else. I have, I have one last question. I know I've been yeah. hogging this time, but I'm really curious. So um, I listen almost exclusively to audiobooks because I have like mobility issues with my hand. So uh, kind of what's the process in getting audiobooks, especially if you're publishing through an independent publisher. And I know like picture books and stuff like that are a little bit different because that's kind of a hard medium to transfer to audiobooks. But like, say with your middle grade and YA, like if you're publishing through an independent publisher, how much easier or harder is it to get audiobooks published as well? Right, so it all kind of comes down to your contract. With my contract with Zero Repeat Forever, I only sold to Simon and Schuster the rights to the um, printed book, um, and so the I maintained the audiobook rights, and then my agent sold those rights to an audiobook publisher. Um, what are they called? Brilliance, Brilliance Audio. Okay. Um, so with my middle grade books, like Pandas on the East Side, I still don't have an audiobook for that, and I. I kind of thought I would get one. And then I looked at my contract and realized that I've maintained <laughs> the audiobook rights. Yeah. So it's my fault that I don't have one. Um, I should have, but I, I had a different agent then and she wasn't okay. really doing her job. Mm. So um, I could go back and, you know, maybe I will, I, I might look at that when I get this next book published, I might look at getting audiobooks of both that book and pandas on the East side. Um, 
produced or or sell the rights to an audiobook publisher. So um, yeah, I don't. And then my my um, my other young adult series is a. I do believe there is an audio of uh, Audacious made that was made by the um, Canadian Institute for the Blind. I think. Okay. Hmm. So I think it's out there, the recording, but it's kind of like only accessible, um, like it's not for sale, basically. It's only accessible mm -hmm. to students to download okay. or something. I, I'm not sure. So okay. yeah, I need to I need to be a little bit more um, on on the ball with that, I think, because as you say, like a lot of readers do read audiobooks, and I have a lot of fans of Zero Repeat Forever from the audiobooks. So certainly if I do another young adult, I will make sure that I get the audiobook of it done one way or another. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. I listened to the audiobook for Zero Repeat Forever. It was really well done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's how I listened to it. I listened to it. Yeah, we all did um, listen to it. It it was. It was very well done. Thank um, you. It, I do have a lot of fans who um who read it on audiobook. Part of it was because when it sort of took off on TikTok it mm. sold out very quickly in the physical book okay. and people really wanted to read it. So they downloaded the audio instead. That's great. So, yeah. Um, so since we're, we were talking about uh, Zero Repeat Forever, which is the book all three of us read that you've written, mm -hmm. um, you have the, the aliens communicating through signs instead of being verbal. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with that, how you decided that was what you wanted to use as their source of communication? Sure. Um, I don't really remember how I came up with it, but I know that I've always, there's a lot of stuff in Zero Repeat Forever that is like a response to some of my frustrations about the way that um, science fiction um, aliens, I'm using inverted commas, aliens mm -hmm. are presented. And so um, I, one of the things, one of the frustrations is that, you know, like in Star Trek, for example, they just land on the planet and the, whoever's living on the planet, you know, they'll have some weird thing with their forehead and they'll be like, hi, who are you? And they speak English. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of been, I understand why that happens because otherwise it'd be too hard to make the show. But I'm, I was always a little bit frustrated about that. So I was mm -hmm. like, I, I want there to be some sort of communication issue um, because it just, it makes it, you know, it makes the, ultimately the book is about the connection between Eighth and Raven. And so I wanted there to be some sort of serious communication issue between them that they, str that they struggled to communicate. And then mm -hmm. I also, a big part of when I started the book, I really knew that I wanted the aliens to be wearing this kind of bioorganic armor because I think that's mm -hmm. cool. Me too. I remember writing it and thinking, why hasn't someone done this before as mm -hmm. a young adult, as a, you know, mm -hmm. as a, as a romantic hero, this kind of, um, you know, half robot, half cyborg sort of like mm -hmm. the Cylons and I mean, I love those yes. characters, all the mm -hmm. Cylons in Battlestar Galactica and the Stormtroopers 
and all of the Darth Vader and all these guys in the map. And now we have mm-hmm. the Mandalorian who's just yes. like yes. writing with the helmets. Yeah. 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 So why hasn't someone made a young adult hero like this? So I thought, well, I'm going to do it. Um, and then I thought, you know, because he's, because he's got, because they wear the armor and because it, it impacts their ability, like it keeps them alive, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that means that they can't speak. And then, and then it just seemed obvious to me that um, they would use some form of signs mm-hmm. and it kind of grew from there. I did, um, you know, I learned to speak a little bit of Australian sign language when I was living in Australia, which mm-hmm. is quite different from ASL. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a little bit of that. And, you know, I, I studied videos of ASL and, and also just um, from studying linguistics, understanding how languages evolve and develop and also from studying child psychology knowing that um, if children are denied language for some reason mm-hmm. which is usually because they're deaf right um, they will invent their own language mm-hmm. so there's been cases of deaf children who are raised in institutions and not given access to um, sign language and they almost always invent their own sign language mm-hmm. and um so that's kind of what I was getting at with the knocks and the way they speak. They can understand spoken language mm-hmm. um, and, and um, you know, English. It is in, in Zero Repeat Forever and Cold Falling White. But the implication is that the ones who are working in other places in the world could understand other languages. And, you know, that's something that I probably would have gotten into in the third book if I'd ever written it. Um, <laughs> but um, the signs that they're given that they're taught are sort of limited to, um, you know, tactical military mm-hmm. signs. Mm-hmm. And they're not really supposed to use any other words because they're supposed right. to be very focused on, on their mission. And so that's why there's a couple of places where, um, where August says he makes words up and also mm-hmm. where he's not supposed to use certain words and right. um, where they don't, he doesn't have a sign for certain things. Um, and then in Cold Falling White, um, there's actually a deleted scene in Cold Falling White, which I think is on the website zerorepeatforever.com, mm-hmm. where um, where one of the knocks says, "Are you having fun with your toy?" Because they 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 encounter um, August and Xander after they've left Raven, um, mm-hmm. but before August and Xander go separate ways. So they encounter some other knocks and Xander, August pretends that he's just killed Xander and that he's just dragging his body around for fun. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them says, are you having fun with your toy? And um, August, you know, his, in his narration, he's like, he, that's not a word. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, and his, and the other, the other knocks is offside is like, you're not, you know, that's not a word. You're not supposed to say fun. Right. Or something like Mm -hmm. that. I can't Mm -hmm. exactly remember. But that's the, the implication is that they all make up words and but they're not supposed to, but you can't repress that in right. um, in a in a sentient creature. Right. 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 So yeah. Yeah. So there's a kind of a whole bunch of sort of layers about the signs that the Knox use. And I did I did consult with a um, an ASL speaker about it. Um, and she actually uh, read the, you know, she has a sensitivity reader. And, you know, there was a, a few sort of things about it that I wanted to get across. 
a lot about the denial of language, you yeah. know, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. a recurring theme in uh, colonization, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in kids with disabilities. So, yeah. um, so I wanted to kind of, yeah, get across those themes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm into linguistics also, and I call myself a polyglot because I pick up languages easily, um, but like just also like to learn them and to know right. how other people communicate. So that was one of like a, a little thing that I really, really liked about the story. Um, and I liked how, you know, you kind of have like how August decides to use the signs and like make up his own sort of grammar and sentence structure in order to get across his point of view um because there are times when you're like well I I don't have a word for that so yeah what are you going to say instead but yeah Yeah. there's it's um there was a a movie called Arrival that like talks a lot about language and development and it's like you can't you can't try to ask someone a question about death if they don't even understand what the word and meaning behind death even is yeah yeah exactly exactly and I'm I'm super into like languages and stuff too and um I did, you know, I did want to like, you asked me earlier if I had a writing quirk and I do one of my writing quirks is that my characters often have two names mm-hmm. and um, the the whole idea of them changing their name or choosing a different name or going by a nickname or somebody else giving them a nickname is a very common theme in my, in my books. And I don't know why, because I've always just gone by Gabrielle and, you know, I'm quite happy to be Gabrielle. I, I published the zero repeat as GS Prendergast sort of on a whim. <laughs> I kind of regret it. I, you know, but um, I guess it'll work out that way. Maybe, I don't know, but so yeah, there's always a lot of, a lot of that in my books. Um, and it, I guess it has to do with, um, you know, you can't really understand something until you give it a name. Do you know what I mean? And it's just also yourself and how you're perceived and, um, I don't know, it comes up a lot in my books, but I, I did like that element of revealing that the grammar of the way that the knocks speak is not directly translatable into English grammar. And that's true of all languages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you translate a sentence in French, you can't translate every word in order mm-hmm. and have it no, make right. sense in English. Right. Right. You have to translate, right. you have to translate the whole idea. Right. Um, and that's, I think that even more so in, uh, you know, French and English are quite closely related, but the further you get um, in terms of relation from languages, the more the grammar is variant yeah. from English. And so you have to do yeah. more work to translate it. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to make sure that that was as the, as Raven starts to be able to understand um, August's speech, Mm-hmm. she starts to translate it in her head so at first her the way that he speaks seems sort of an unusual grammar but then mm-hmm. she just translated into her head because mm-hmm. right. that's what you do when you speak another language you you don't right. translate word by word it you just automatically kind of yeah right yeah 
I, I do think it's um so you you're fluent in French you speak French? I used to be okay <laughs> <laughs> no because um so ASL is actually closely related to French signed um right French, yeah so yeah be, because of the way it was brought to the Americas um so right. I, I just thought that was kind of interesting a little like meta deep cut that you you decided to go with assigned yeah. language <laughs> yeah 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 Auslan which is the Australian sign language is completely different language which is pretty mm -hmm. weird when you think about Australians speaking English and Americans and Canadians speak English but yeah. deaf Australians don't speak the same language as deaf Americans and Canadians mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of shared words um mm -hmm. but that yeah it's a, it's a totally different language and it has even a kind of a difference that even the alphabet is different so they okay. don't use the same, um, they use a two-handed uh, mm -hmm. spelling alphabet rather than the one hand. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. And the, you know that reveals that the language Auslan actually emerged um, at that time of split. So when Australia was settled by Europeans or invaded, I guess you would say, colonized by Europeans, um, in the late 1700s then we know that the australian sign language began after that point so that mm. any deaf people who were transported which of course happened a lot because people with disabilities were just rounded up and declared mm -hmm. criminals or right. they had a disability and there was no way for them to support themselves apart from picking pockets um so they would get transported um and then when they arrived in australia they had to invent a means of communicating with each other. And that's where mm -hmm. Auslan came from. Okay. So the word for Australia, they think yeah. is it's this, kind of like you're throwing something down. Mm -hmm. And they think that's because they have to carry all the stuff off the boats and just throw it down. Oh. So Australia is like that. Huh? <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier about using social media. Um, can you talk about how you use it and how it impacted your um, your sales or your writing or just like finding new fans or if it even had any um, impact on um, getting new things published? Sure. Um, I had no intention of getting on TikTok. I thought that was something my daughter was doing. Um, I didn't, I don't, I don't like that aspect of mm -hmm. promoting my books. I, yeah. I don't like promoting my books at all. I, I like writing them. I wish someone else would mm -hmm. promote them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing, but TikTok, um, the book went viral on TikTok in late 2020 through no uh, effort of my own. And I just decided to run with it. It was an opportunity for me to, um, you know, get the word out about the book. Yeah. Because I hadn't had very much promotion from my publisher. Mm. And um, so I joined TikTok and I started making videos. And, um, you know, then I guess I developed, I got a lot of new fans and new readers that way. So mm. I'm still sort of, um, you know, trying to keep keep a, a hand in on on TikTok and um, keep awareness up of the series, mm -hmm. and 
I don't really have anything else to promote right now yeah. on TikTok. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could promote my previous series. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally I talk about that, but I don't have, I, I um, picture books and even middle grade books don't have a huge um, place on TikTok. Mm. So okay. there's no point me putting that much effort into promoting mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can get another young adult book, published then I might you know put together sort of something a little bit more structured in terms of a campaign about it but for the moment I don't have a young adult book uh on contract um as I said my agent is shopping one but yeah I don't know I mean I'm I'm tempted to just write uh and and self-publish uh a a fantasy romance because that seems to be the thing that's really popular on TikTok mm-hmm. yeah. and I love it. I love mm-hmm. A Court of Thorns and Roses and mm-hmm. I love, um, you know, all the books like that. So, mm-hmm. and I have a million ideas for them and and characters running around in my head. So I'm sort of tempted to do that, but yeah, we'll see. I have a bunch of things yeah. that I have. Has there yeah. been any other impact to um, Zero Repeat Forever? besides getting new fandom or more people saying like, you know, we need to knock down Simon's doors and get this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon and Schuster hasn't contracted me for a third book, if that's mm-hmm. what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, I did get a screen option um, for the series. Oh, and okay. um, the producers just recently renewed that for another year. Oh, so cool. they, they have some nibbles. They're trying to get um, trying to get a TV series. I think is basically what we're aiming for. So we'll see. I guess whether that happens, um, you know, maybe I can continue the story that way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely get more people and be like, oh wait, yeah. I have the first, I have the second. Right. The rest of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I find it interesting how kind of the YA genre itself, like it took off. It took, it really took, has taken off in the last few years in terms of books. But once they started making shows, and I feel like shows over movies, because sometimes the movies weren't, you know, the best. Yeah. But, um, like TV shows, I, I, I feel like the YA genre is very well situated to be translated yeah, into TV shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For yeah, sure, that way you can sure. spend more time with the characters and like really get into maybe some kind of smaller scenes in a book that might not have made it to a movie but were so right. important in the book yeah right um, so I I agree with that yeah for sure I think I think generally books especially um science fiction and fantasy books are better suited for adapting into um tv series than movies because mm-hmm. they're so complex mm-hmm. um and some of them have been really successfully done into movies. I think the Hunger Games series is very good. I think the Harry Potter series is very good. Um, but a lot of them were quite disappointing in terms of movies. Percy Jackson movies, I don't think, are very good. And Cassandra mm. um, yeah, Clare, um, what's that? Oh, Shadowhunters. Um, the Shadowhunters yes. movie was Shadow, not very yes. good. But right. the series seems to have the, been more successful. So yeah. part of the reason is when you're writing for young adults, when you're writing a book for young adults, you're very much focused on the teens 
mm -hmm. the teen characters and you can't really get into the heads of the adults who are around mm -hmm. and if you turn it into a series the series is for everybody to watch right right yes and teen viewers are quite happy to watch adults on television you know mm -hmm. like go mm -hmm. watch yeah. breaking bad or whatever yeah. so um so that gives you the opportunity to get into the heads of the the adult characters in the books there aren't a lot of adult characters in zero repeat forever but certainly if i was to adapt the series a couple of the characters whose you know backstories and relationships i would get into more uh felix and sawyer obviously their relationship mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um uh kim liam's mom her whole backstory i think would be interesting yeah. um and then yeah. in the in cold falling white um you know garvin who runs the kind of enclave where that xander ends up he has a really interesting sort of personality i guess you could get more mm -hmm. into him and okay. spend more time with them you don't spend time with adult characters in young young adult books but if you're doing a series you could spend quite a lot of time with the adult characters mm -hmm. yeah. and right. some of them are really interesting so yeah and and like have the adults interact a little more with um with the young adult characters because in young adult books it feels like the kid the teens get up to shenanigans because of a lack of adult supervision yeah right right yeah yeah so they don't really interact that much with adults by design mm -hmm. exactly it is by design and you're always as an as an author you're always trying to figure out a way of getting rid of the adults right <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly send them away or something so yeah. um so yeah that's that's definitely a big part of it um in tv i don't in movies i don't think that that's as well in movies like if you think about the harry potter movies they very rarely have a scene where Harry is not present. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the adults are talking, Harry is hiding under his invisibility cloak or something like that mm -hmm. and listening. Yeah. Um, but if you were to do a TV series about Harry Potter, you know, and it could be like a hundred seasons long, um, mm -hmm. but you could really get get into having like what's happening in these scenes that, you know, that we were are behind the scenes between the adults. Mm -hmm. um, right. And then also, as you say, what's where are the moments where the adults interact with the with the teen characters or the child characters um, mm -hmm. on a more detailed level than in the book? Because as in the book, you're always just trying to get the adults out of the room so the kids right. can get it up to shenanigans, as you say. Mm -hmm. So, right. Yeah, I think one of the TV shows that does that split really well, it's it's not on the air anymore, but the Vampire Diaries Yeah, did, you know, adults and teens scenes pretty well. Um, and I think it also kind of was good at like graduating the teens into older people, right? Because yeah. obviously if it's young adult, then it feels like they should stay teens forever. But Right. part of their character arc should be them growing and, right. and like aging is part of that mm -hmm. that's right and I, and that's also just a practical consideration of making a tv series that if you you know you you make one season a year the actors are gonna mature if you start with children right mm -hmm. right so and and you want 
the way that American TV works, they will if the if the show can continue for sixteen seasons, they will do it. Mm-hmm. That's what Supernatural has taught us, yeah. anyway. Yes, and crazy they keep going. So those those guys grew from being yeah. you know young men, sexy mm-hmm. yeah. young sort of twenty something men to like middle aged dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and they just. They just had to kind of keep going with it. So if you're mm-hmm. dealing with teenagers, if you have a cast of teenagers you and you want to keep the series going, you have to think of a way to turn them into adults mm-hmm. um, and and maybe introduce some new teen characters or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's kind of a, the practical considerations of doing a live action TV show. You have to think about, well, the adults, the actors are going to get older. So right. the characters need to get older too so we have to right. think about our timeline here i guess mm-hmm. yes like yeah stranger things yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly like those kids just really grew up and that yeah. was a case of them casting kids who were the appropriate age for those yeah. characters mm-hmm. in the first season rather than casting 18 year olds which they yes. mm-hmm. um right. so so then those kids grew up and it was the same with the harry potter series they cast the actors at, at mm-hmm. the right age as children and, yeah and right. then they had to, um, you know, make sure that by the time they finished the, I think the actors were about 20 when they, when they made the last movie. So, and they were yeah, supposed to be 17. So, so that, right. that works. Right. When you have actors who you've cast 25 year olds to play 17 year olds, and that goes on for seven seasons, right. you know, like nine, um, Beverly Hills, 90210. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then you have someone who's like nearly 40 yeah. playing a high school student. It's, yeah. yeah doesn't work that's too much yeah yeah all right so we um kind of talked about like the positive surge of you know fans uh, enjoying zero repeat forever um how do you process and deal with like negative reviews for any of your books um i mainly ignore them yeah i don't uh i don't i did you know you're not not supposed to read your reviews Mm-hmm. but I do. I definitely read my four star and five star reviews on Goodreads or Amazon mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, I haven't had, I haven't, you know, some authors get reviews where they're like, this element of your book is really problematic. You must respond. I haven't had that. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. Cause I don't mm-hmm. know how I would deal with that. Yeah. Um, I think I probably wouldn't respond. I never respond to my reviews. Okay. So, um, but, and I don't think, I don't think authors should respond to that. Like if they've, if mm-hmm. they've written a book that's, that's problematic in some way and published it and the fans point out that it's problematic, I think the author should either just withdraw the book or just ignore it. Because once an author gets involved in a discussion like that, then they can either, you know, they can either apologize and those apologies are never really considered to be enough so then it just becomes they have to apologize for the apology not being enough and then it just becomes a whole thing um and even if they do apologize the book is still out there so if you really Mm -hmm. think the book is that harmful then you should withdraw it right i mean i don't know how i would do that if that happened with zero repeat forever (laughs) i don't know i can't (laughs) i can't withdraw it so that yeah i mean you would i would really be like lip reduced to saying if you want this book taken off the market you need to speak to my publishers because i have no control over it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would never i would never enter into that i pray it doesn't happen 
I, mm-hmm. you know, I try, I'd be, I'd be very disappointed if my, in myself, if I wrote and published something that was truly problematic. There are elements to all of my books that people, um, you know, take, take offense to, but I don't think that um, I've written anything. I've certainly not intentionally written anything true, you know, like that I think is harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would be, as I said, I'd be very disappointed in myself if that happened, but I, I don't, I wouldn't make it worse by entering into the discussion about it. I would yeah, kind of right. be like, let the fans vent and mm-hmm. deal with it the way that they think is appropriate. And, um, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if someone was like, I demand an apology, I don't think I would apologize because mm-hmm. I don't think that helps. So for my books, anyway, if I did something else, you know, like right. I, I, yeah, if I was, yeah. a, a, you know, like insulted somebody at a conference or something like that, I would apologize, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't apologize um, for my books mm-hmm. because I don't, I yeah. don't think it helps. The books are just out there. So right. mm-hmm. yeah, I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. So, so uh, you had mentioned earlier, kind of as a follow up to this, that um, in terms of the signing, you said you had an ASL sensitivity reader who went over. Um, is that something that you like? That's something that came from you, or was it uh, like the publishers, or like how did that come about in terms of of um, you? having someone go over right um at that time publishers didn't um were involved in having sensitivity readers so it was something that i organized but i understand that now some publishers do provide a like a kind of a budget for sensitivity reading that's that because i have some friends who do sensitivity reading and that seems to be something that they um that they have done um, but no, I, I paid for my sensitivity readers myself. I had um, uh, an ASL speaker who's deaf uh, and then um, two uh, biracial readers for, uh, no, and one of my, and, and then my, my editors, like she was sort of an ed- assistant editor on the project. She's black American. So she, so, so I felt like fairly covered for that, which was good because I, you know, I didn't want to um, get things wrong with that. And then for Cold Falling White, I had two, um, uh, one of them was Chinese Canadian and one of them was Chinese American. I think I had two readers for that. Sensitivity readers. I feel like I'm missing somebody. I did consult some people like there's a, a little bit of um, content about Raven's father or her stepfather, who's Métis, which Mm -hmm. is one of the um, Indigenous communities in Canada. And so I consulted um, somebody about that. Actually, my sister's best friend um, comes from that community. So I consulted with her about that. uh, Yeah, I feel like I'm forgetting. But I I did quite a lot of cultural research, um, Mm -hmm. which is not something that I... um, you know, <laughs> I don't set out to do it. 
because characters tell me who they are, right? So sometimes I'm writing something and I'm just like, this is just a story about a girl and she's probably a little bit like me. And then I, and then I sort of sit back and I go, oh, this character's, you know, a, a boy. Well, that's okay. That makes it awkward, but fine. I'll change the character to a boy. And then it'll be like, oh, this character's gay. This character is also Asian. And it, it just becomes this whole thing. So then I have to be like, okay, well, now I'm going to have to do a little bit more research and um, consult with a, a few people and stuff. And it all always ends up being more complicated than I want it to be. But that's sort of the nature of writing, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do think that I did actually ask my publisher if they could pay for some um, sensitivity readers and they said no. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but I think publishers do pay for it now. That's what I've heard. Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I will have to say, I'm glad that you <laughs> did it on your own. I yeah. think it definitely shows in yeah. the mm-hmm. writing yeah. and about the different characters. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to get it right. Um, It felt, it felt like Raven just kind of wanted to be, you know, like she was in my head and she just sort of wanted to be seen for who she is and stuff. And so then I had to, you know, I wanted to talk to some people. One of my um, sensitivity readers was um, raised in a white family. She was adopted. So she had a really a lot of insight into what that's like. And I felt like that was a good sort of insight into being black Canadian because especially in Alberta, there isn't like a a community, do you know, like Mm -hmm. the black American Mm -hmm. identity is very distinct and it's, there's a very strong community and, um, and black people in America can like engage with that community sort of at whatever level they want. Like they can be really involved in it Mm -hmm. or they can be sort of a little bit more distance from it but in Canada especially as as I said in Alberta there isn't a large black community Mm. and the black communities that there are tend to be um sort of um determined by where that those people immigrated from so there's a Jamaican community and there's sort of a Nigerian community or whatever right so um so for Raven she would have felt a little bit disconnected I think Mm. um from, and so for me, consulting with with my that one sensitivity reader who was adopted, I think that was a really helpful insight to for her to feel sort of like she's you know she's she's a black person but like right. a bit distanced from the black community through no choice of her own, just kind of right. through practical um, implications. And that's a little bit what Raven is like too. Um, Raven's mother, you know, again, if we do, if we did the TV series, we can meet Raven's mother and get a little bit more, know a little bit more about her, but Raven's mother is British. So she speaks with a British accent and, um, you know, so that she's kind of like doubly an outsider in Canada. She's black and she's British. So, you know, Canadians kind of don't really look at her and just don't don't really know what, who are you? Where did you come from? Why are you the way you are? And part of that is from my for my upbringing, my parents have an accent. So when my kids, when my um, friends came over to my house, they would be like, why do your parents talk like that? And I would have to say, well, because they were born in another country, you know, like. Right, um, right, right. 
so there's so there's elements of kind of my own background too and then elements that you know from consulting with my my sensitivity readers and because i consulted with um with this one sensitivity reader also while i was writing and then right. she did a sensitivity read so we sort of had two levels mm. of mm -hmm. of consultation right cool awesome all right so out of the two zero feet forever and cold falling white what did you have a scene or a character um that was your most fun to write that you related to most that kind of came to you and you're like this is it yeah um I, well eighth i think august I, I love the Knox. They're so, I feel very connected to them. I feel very, um, you know, they're sort of um, neurodiverse mm -hmm. a little bit. And I think that's kind of what I am. I think August in particular, he has, um, you know, he has memory problems because of brain damage. Because, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. he, gets, he gets injured at the beginning of the book. And I have memory problems because of um you know being old um and um and then they're they're all that he particularly like i don't know whether maybe he even if he wasn't a knox he would still kind of be um not like being around other people and mm -hmm. um prefer to be by himself so he's a little bit I, i've ha actually had um fans write to me and ask me straight up is he autistic and i'm like I mean, I don't want to imply that being autistic is, you know, being like an alien, right? So, um, <laughs> right. But I think that I think that maybe if he was a human, he would probably have those tendencies mm -hmm. to have difficulty making eye contact and, um, you know, preferring to be by himself and being anxious around large groups of people and all mm -hmm. of these are qualities that I share. Mm -hmm. And but then there's other elements to the Knox that I just really enjoy. Like I love the um, the female Knox in Cold Falling White, Aurora and Nova and Sky, and how powerful they are, and how they just don't take any shit from anybody. And um, I love how protective they are of each other. Um, and I love the idea of um, the bond that the Knox have with their offsides and. So I think the Knox are like one of my favorite creations. I really, I really enjoy them. And I love how nasty and dangerous they are. Yeah. I really yeah. love Six. I'm <laughs> sad about her. <laughs> yeah, I really, I actually so really shame. love the relationship between um, August and Six. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. I'm not obviously it's completely unhealthy. But narratively, right. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's very. It's it's. There's just so much to to build on, and that was actually going to be a big part of the third book. Was going to be a kind of a flashback to when they first, um, when they first met and they first got paired together and they were first working yeah. together. Okay, so uh, let let me ask you this: um, with the 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 issues with the publisher and everything, is the third book like an idea that you have or are you are you going to just write it at some point or do you are you waiting for 
some actual like publisher interest? Well, I'm not going to write it for now um, without a publisher being interested. Mm. But we'll see how what happens with the TV series, whether that goes ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an, I, I've sort of outlined it. What mm -hmm. happened was I initially conceptualized it as a three book series. So yes. I, I had written the first book and my agent said, well, the editors wanna see the outlines for the other books. So I, had, I wrote the outlines. And then at some point when we started um, selling the book, they, the publishers were saying we would prefer this to be two books rather than three books. Okay. So I was like, oh God. So when I started writing the second book, I had to delete a whole section of it. And so, mm. so basically the third book would be, the original outline would, was going to be in the second book, a big chunk of that is taken out. And then in the third book, a chunk of that has been put into the second book. So the third okay. book would be those two chunks put together. Yeah. So okay. It, be, it, it basically, a lot of the third book would be about um, what happens to August after he and Xander uh, go their separate ways in the beginning mm -hmm. of Cold Falling White. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because we don't know. All we know is that he's in he he he's in that explosion, and right. Xander thinks he's dead. And then the next time we see him, he's in Calgary, and um, and we don't know anything about how he got there. Mm -hmm. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> right. you guys don't know. Right. So, right. so right. that's what that's. If I was to write a third book, I would write that, and then I would go. Uh, you know, so it would be sort of backstory, and then I would go back to the set up from the second book which is the battle the you know the ultimate battle that raven is involved with when the rift opens yeah. so yeah cool Sweet. so maybe i will do that one day <laughs> those emails to simon and schuster okay <laughs> so you have had like kind of an interesting journey um with these publisher problems but also like how you started out and and writing uh, across so many um, different categories and genres. So what, what would you maybe consider like your most valuable piece of advice that you can give? Well, to, for people who are writing, mm -hmm. I would say that, uh, you know, if you're just starting out writing that you should you should try to finish things, but also <laughs> understand that sometimes the things that you finish are not going to be workable. And rather than going and trying to make them work, just start something else. Mm -hmm. So a lot of publishing is just letting things go. Yeah. And that's the funny thing actually about going viral on TikTok. I had moved on to other things in my head from zero repeat yeah. forever. I was ready okay. to just let it go. Right. And um, I remember having a conversation with my agent and she was like, you know, we could, you could do this to try to promote it. And I said, you know, I've moved on. Like I, I can just like, I'll just write something else. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay, well that's fair. And then, you know, it started to build momentum again. So I kind of had to dive back into it, which in a way was sort of annoying. Cause I, you know, I was ready to move on. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that you have to do as a writer is is know you know when when a project right. is dead whether it's not going to work whether you've tried to sell it to agents or publishers and just nobody's 
interested um, and it's time to do the next thing. And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't do that because it's a phenomenal effort to write a whole book, but right. you have yeah. to do that. Yeah. Right. That would be my advice. And then if you, if you have a book and you are getting some interest from publishers or you're thinking about independently published, my advice would, uh, and independently publishing it, my advice would be to set aside a fair bit of your time and your budget to um, do your own promotions because you'll ne you're not going to get as much promotion from your publisher as you probably deserve. Right. Um, and you know to think about to 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 target your um, your promotions very carefully. Mm -hmm. So think about what works again, which is why I waste time on TikTok because it seems to work. Mm -hmm. A lot of my videos get no views at all, but then occasionally I'll get one that gets 40,000 views and I can mm -hmm. actually see the impact that that has on my Amazon ranking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if mm -hmm. I have a video that about zero repeat forever, that gets a lot of views, I'll go and check my Amazon ranking and I'll be sure enough, I'm, wow. I'm moving up in the ranks. Wow. People are literally buying the book. So yeah, it's working. That's awesome. That's great. That's, yeah. that's great. cool. Yeah. Um, I have a one uh, last question that's kind of a follow-up to that. Um, but um, so you have, you actually have experience in script writing, in writing for um, media. And yeah. So if you, if you, this option um, goes through for Zero Repeat Forever um, and, and Cold Falling White, would you, are you going to try to negotiate to be part of the writer's room for that? Um, I'm not sure. I have talked to the producers. Initially, when I, when I first started talking to them, I was really quite adamant that I wanted to be, you know, involved as a writer. Mm -hmm kind of from the get-go and involved in sort of conceptualizing the whole thing. And gradually, you know, when my agent was negotiating with them and then in my head, I was just like, no, I really do just need to move on. Like I need to let this baby go. Hmm. So uh, they know that I would like to write an episode mm -hmm. um, or, uh, you know, or more than one episode. Okay. And if we get that far, then, then we can talk about, about that then. But at this point, uh, like I said, a big part of being a writer is just being able to let things go. Mm -hmm. right, right. So it would be nice to have more control over it. And sometimes writers do, mm -hmm. you know, they're executive producers on their own uh, projects, but right. I'm not really at that level. Okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, so. it does, it seems like you have a pretty like healthy outlook on yeah. on all of this I I think like a lot of writers particularly YA writers who come out of like MFA programs are often not really told about the reality of publishing beyond the writing yeah. aspect of it yeah yeah I think that's true and I think uh, partly because I started out in screenwriting mm -hmm. and you know when especially when you write um, for film you're as a screenwriter, you are daily in danger of them just saying you're fired. Mm -hmm. So like that you have a contract that means that you will get a certain amount of money for what you've done so far when mm -hmm. the film goes into production. But as far as keeping you on the writing staff, they can fire you at any time. Mm -hmm. I see. 
And I stayed on the writing staff. I was actually on set doing rewrites for Hildegard when it was being filmed. So I stayed on the writing staff the whole time, but I knew at any moment I could be replaced. Mm -hmm. I could be forced to work with a co-writer. Someone could do rewrites, any of that stuff. So you have to get sort of philosophical about that and just be like, it's a job. Right. It's no different than any other job, right? right? So as much as I feel very attached to the Knox and, and to Raven, um, I have to know like if the TV show goes ahead and things are, are in it that I disapprove of, mm -hmm. that I won't take it too personally. Right. I mean, I think I'd be sad. <laughs> I'd be yeah. really, really angry yeah. if they don't cast a, you know, a biracial girl to play Raven. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think there's any danger of that. One of the women that I'm, uh, the producers that I'm working with is a person of color herself. So. Um, That's cool. Yeah. yeah right. So I, so I think that, that um, I, you know, I don't think that will happen, but um, they seem to, they seem to feel, you know, they, they understand the material. I think that the mm -hmm. producers are working yeah. on it now, but That's the way that film TV shows get produced is that they have to, now they're going to take it to the next level who have more money and they're mm -hmm. going to get more people at some point along the line, people might say, Oh, instead of, you know, this, can we do this? And maybe that will happen. Sometimes mm -hmm. it does. Right. So right. I guess we just have to see. <laughs> right. So it's like our last question for you Okay. is on our podcast, we always provide recommendations to our listeners about what to read or watch next. So we wanted to get some recommendations from you. Okay. Well, I tell everybody that they need to read The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. Yes. Yes. <laughs> which I just am obsessed with. Um, and what I'm reading right now, I have it, where is it? It's right here. I just found this book. It's called oh Gather. Okay. By Richard Van Camp. He's a, mm -hmm. um, an Indigenous um, writer from um, the Dene Nation, I think it is, mm -hmm. and which is sort of northern, um, like north, not quite the Northwest Territories, but around that, I think. I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure. But anyway, I think he lives in Edmonton now. And this is actually, a. it's called On the Joy of Storytelling. And mm -hmm. it's a book about, um, about storytelling, very much focused on the traditions, the Indigenous traditions of storytelling. And it has, and he's included um, some transcribed stories from some of his storytelling colleagues. Mm -hmm. And I just started reading it and it's really great. So um, I thought I would recommend that. It's quite, and I'm not sure when it came out, but um, yeah, I've just lately I've been, because I'm, I'm actually doing a writer's residency right now. So I'm teaching a lot of workshops and- Oh, that's cool. About writing and things. So I've been looking yeah. for materials to sort of refer to. And this is one of the things that I found. Awesome. So um, awesome. yeah, that and murder one. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so, so much for coming to talk to us. I think this was a wonderful conversation. Um, we definitely recommend everybody read Zero Repeat Forever. Mm -hmm. Read or listen to. The yes. audiobook is excellent. Thank you. Um, and just thank you so much again. Yes, thank you for thank having you. me. It was lovely talking to you all.
Yes. And it was lovely talking to you. It was. Yes. Yep. Very, very, very nice. Thanks for listening to Blurred on the Street. If you like us, be sure to follow us and give us a rating or review on Apple or Spotify. We'll be back with another episode soon.